Now, I have a real treat for you tonight. You know, last evening we were studying about murmurs. And murmurs indicate what? Heart trouble. You all remember that, don't you? And Sister Esther Hurst just handed me this lovely poem, which she's written between last night and tonight. And see if you don't think that the Lord has helped her to sum up everything I gave last night in a few lines of poetry. Would you like to hear it? All right. The name of the poem is Murmur Not. Oh, how concerned a patient is when told his heart's not right. He's willing to do anything to rectify his plight. A maladjusted leaking valve, a small, soft, murmuring sound. Enlargement here or shrinkage there are defects that are found. His heart must be made perfect to perform and function well. The slightest imperfection in its muscle, wall, or cell quite soon can be detected by a doctor and his nurse and remedies are quickly sought before the thing gets worse. The body and the spirit are alike in many things. The great physician for the soul is Christ, the King of kings. The stethoscope of Jesus, when applied unto the soul, detects the slightest murmur from a heart that isn't whole. The remedy is sure, but it requires the surgeon's knife to take away the heart of stone so long that's ruled the life. His hand is gentle as he cuts the sinful heart away, replacing it with one that's filled with love from him each day. You need not fear the master's hand. He knows just what's required to recreate and make like new a heart that's worn and tired. And when his work is done in you, no longer can be found a heart that has the slightest trace of any murmuring sound. I thank the Lord for that, don't you? Well, friends, that's what we want, isn't it? That new heart that has no murmurs. Now tonight, I want to study with you two great facts which if we get settled, we can live without murmurs. The first is, God is on his throne and he is ruling our lives. And that everything he does is all right. You remember that when Daniel was down in Babylon, the king of Babylon was given a dream of a great tree that reached to heaven. You remember that nobody could interpret the dream until Daniel was called in. And he told the king what the dream meant. Nebuchadnezzar himself is the one that wrote this fourth chapter of Daniel that tells about it. Let's go over to the fourth chapter of Daniel and see what Nebuchadnezzar learned. You'll find it written three times in this chapter. In the fourth chapter and the 17th verse, 
in the 32nd verse, pardon me, the 25th verse, and the 32nd verse, 17, 25, 32. What is it? The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And as the result of that, Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion in the 35th verse is, He, that is God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? In other words, to use the common expression of today, God is running things. God is running things. Now tell me, friends, if you and I believe that God is running things and we love God, what do we have to complain about? What do we have to murmur about? Not a thing. Let's turn over to that wonderful verse in Romans, the 8th chapter. Oh, I like this one. Romans, the 8th chapter, and the 28th verse. And we know, what do we know? That all things do what? Work together. And what's the next two words? For good. To everybody. Is that what it says? To them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. God would like to work everything together for good for everybody, but they won't let him. They're the people that are murmuring and complaining. And the more they murmur and complain, the more they worry themselves outside the circle of God and his plan. In fact, we are told that when we take into our own hands the management of our affairs, we may well worry and anticipate trouble, for it's sure to come. But the people who have nothing to complain about, no murmurs, are the ones that love God and trust him with everything. That's why Paul and Silas could sing at midnight in the Philippian dungeon. That's why Job could say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Oh, friends, it's a wonderful thing to be free from anything to worry about or murmur about, isn't it? And this is true for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Then the king on his throne is working all things together for your good. And how long has he been planning these things for us? From eternity. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 4, he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world. That's a long time God has been planning for us. Isn't it, friends? Does that mean that God has been looking ahead and arranging everything for my good even before I was born? Oh, yes. Tell me. If you knew that somebody you loved was going to have a birthday, and you should invite that person to come and spend the day with you and spend weeks and months beforehand in planning 
everything that you thought would make them happy, just the best things they like to eat, and a nice place to go, maybe up in the park or something. And then when they got there, they just complain and murmur all day, how would you feel? Disappointed, to say the least, wouldn't you? God has planned for you today, this day, and it's true of tomorrow. He has planned for you from all the millions of things that could be planned, he has planned the very best for that particular day for you. This is what it means, friend, to be linked with the king of the universe. And nothing can stop him. Nothing can stand in his way. He doeth according to his will, we read there in Daniel 4 in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So nobody can get in his way, and nobody can get in your way if you're in his way. I mean, if you're walking in the way of his providence. Oh, this is wonderful, friends. Don't you think so? Then before you can murmur, you have to do one of two things. You either have to doubt that God can get things done, or else you have to say, yes, I know he can get things done, but I don't like the way he does things. Now, either way, you can start to murmur. But there's no third way to murmur. Before you can murmur, you either have to doubt his power or his wisdom and love. One or the other. No other way to murmur. So here, friends, is the cure for murmuring, to know that God is on his throne running everything and to settle the fact that that's what you want. Of course, you have to take the consequences. John the Baptist did, and he got his head cut off, but it was all right with John. Paul and Silas did. They got beaten, put in jail, but that was all right. They had a prayer meeting a praise meeting, and sang away the midnight hours. Oh, friends, nothing to murmur about because God is on his throne. Let me read it here in this wonderful book, Ministry of Healing, page 489. The Father's presence encircled Christ, and nothing befell him but that which infinite love permitted for the blessing of the world. Here was his source of comfort, and it is for us. He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. Whatever comes to him comes from the Savior, who surrounds him with his presence. Nothing can touch him except by our Lord's permission. All our sufferings and sorrows, all our temptations and trials, all our sadness and grief, all our persecutions and privations, in short, all things, work together for our good. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen whereby good is brought to us. 
Isn't that wonderful, friends? Here's something needs repairing at my house. Perhaps the plumbing isn't working. Perhaps the electricity has gone off. I get on the telephone. Presently a workman appears, and he begins to repair the damage. But I say, oh, my, you're just tearing everything up. Well, he may tear a few things up to get at the cause of the trouble and remedy it. But what's he doing? He's repairing the damage. And God, looking at you and me, sees many things in our lives that need fixing. And so he sends workmen. What are they? By these trials and temptations, persecutions and privations, all experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. Let's believe it. What do you say, friend? Oh, but somebody says, there are some things that happen to me I don't think there's any good in at all. The question is not how much good there is in the things. A great many of the things in this world aren't good at all, but the glory of our God is that he's using the bad things to work good for me. Oh, but somebody says, I can't see it. No, you can't. That's where faith comes in. Faith says, I believe it whether I can see it or not. Faith kept Joseph singing through 13 years of slavery and imprisonment. Faith kept hope bright and courage strong. In the book Gospel Workers, page 261, is this wonderful sentence. I suggest that you memorize it. Faith takes God at his word. I'm going to let you copy this. You were taking notes. I hope many of you are. Who want these notes? Faith takes God at his word. Not asking to understand the meaning of the trying experiences that come. I'll read this again. Faith takes God at his word, not asking to understand the meaning of the trying experiences that come. Now, will you say it with me? Faith takes God at his word, not asking to understand the meaning of the trying experiences that come. Again, faith takes God at his word, not asking to understand the meaning of the trying experiences that come. Ah, oh, that's it for us. You know, we could, we could take most anything if we understood the sense of it, the meaning of it, the purpose of it. But all to accept in simple faith what we see no sense in, no reason for, no good to be accomplished by. That, my friends, is the privilege of faith. 261. Oh, this is the glorious privilege of the child of God. Therefore, he has nothing to murmur about. 
Faith takes God at his word, not asking to understand the meaning of the trying experiences that come. So watch. When we're tempted to murmur, the answer is not to pray and study and figure and ponder until we see some good in the thing we were tempted to murmur about. Oh, no, there's a simpler way, a more childlike way, is to say, Lord, I'll have to admit I don't see any sense in this at all, but if you've permitted it, I know that it has some good in it for me, and I thank thee for it, and I'm not going to murmur about it, not at all. I'm going to say thank you. Pretty hard to say thank you and murmur about the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. So in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Well, thank the Lord for that. Now, another thing that I want to study with you. I told you there were two things that we needed to have settled in order to keep from all murmuring. The second thing is to not try to judge and comment on and pass our opinion on everything that everybody else does. You can't help but murmur if you take even a hundredth part of that load. Now, I'm sure nobody gets quite through that assignment of passing their opinion on everything that everybody else does. That, that would be too much, even for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But did you know, speaking of the Supreme Court, that there's just hundreds of things that people would like to have the Supreme Court pass on that they don't pass on at all? Now, there are those men that have devoted their lives to the law, but they're pretty choosy about what they pass judgment on. Anything that comes before the Supreme Court, or should I say most things, those are things that have come up through the lower court. And only, only a few of those thousands of things that go through the lower courts ever get to the Supreme Court. And of those, do you know what the Supreme Court does with quite a number of them? It just hands them back without passing any opinion. Oh, I wonder if there's anybody in this audience that's saying, I wish I could get on the Supreme Court. I'd really decide some things. Maybe that's the reason the Lord hasn't put you up there. Now let's turn to Matthew 7, and we'll read it. Matthew, the seventh chapter. This is in that wonderful Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. Seventh chapter of Matthew in the first verse. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. Don't be judging others. Don't climb on the judgment seat. Don't think that you have to decide whether Brother Brown is doing the right thing with his money or whether Sister Smith is dressing the way she ought to or whether the deacon talks too much or the, you know, on and on and on and on. Let's take another text on it. Romans, the 14th chapter. 
You see, friends, unless you and I learn this lesson, there will be so many heart murmurs that unless some surgery is done quickly, we'll die spiritually. Romans, the 14th chapter and the 4th verse. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Who is the master of Brother Brown and Sister Smith? Christ is. Well, then I'd better leave them with God. Is that right? Oh, but I know what they're doing is wrong. Yes, perhaps it is. But God has not made me the judge. Is it possible for people to do something that looks wrong to me and yet... They're doing the best they know? Yeah. Is it possible for people that, to do something that looks right to me? And yet when the Lord puts his stethoscope on it, he hears some murmurs down inside that aren't good at all. Is that possible? So it isn't for me to judge. Leave people with God. Another verse, same chapter. Romans, the 14th chapter, verses 12 and 13. Well, let's go back to the 10th verse. For why dost thou judge thy brother? Says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 12th verse. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. I was so impressed with those two words anymore. In other words, let's stop. What do you say, friend? Now, many of us last night made a solemn covenant with God that we were going to give up and quit this murmuring forever. Is that right? God's going to help us to do it, isn't he? And these two lessons that I'm giving you tonight are for the purpose of making it possible and making it practical for us. Because the world in which we live is going to be just as bad or worse this coming week as compared with last week. It isn't the world that's going to be different, but you and I are going to be different, men and women, because we have put this terrible, sinful thing of murmuring on the altar and have said to God, burn it up. Burn it up. Cut it out and burn it up. Like those offerings that were cut up and placed on the altar of burnt offering in the ancient sanctuary service. Oh, let's see this whole thing going up in smoke. What do you say? All the murmuring. But remember, if you cherish the least idea that it's your business to comment on what other people are doing, you'll be getting into a rut of murmuring and never get out of it until you get cured of that idea that that's your business. It isn't your business. It isn't my business. It isn't my business to comment on what the pastor of the church is doing or the president of the conference or the president of the union or the president of the general conference. It isn't my business to review everything they do or everything I think they do or everything I've heard they do and say, well, I think that's fine, but this other thing he did, I can't go along with that. Well, somebody says, isn't it my business to express myself? There's a time to express ourselves and there's a time to keep silent. That's what the Bible says. There's a time to speak and a time to keep silent. Do you know what my business is, Fred? And what I'm about to say is not murmuring. Do you know what my 
responsibility is if I see somebody in the church or in the family doing something that I really believe they shouldn't do? Turn to Matthew 18. Let's find out what it is. Matthew, the 18th chapter and the 15th verse. This is murmuring, pray. This is trying to help somebody. Murmuring is complaining. Murmuring is finding fault. Murmuring is criticism. But if your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Then the whole purpose of it is to do what? To gain your brother. There's no murmuring in this brain. If it's done with the loving spirit of Christ. Oh no. But oh so often. Somebody says, oh I couldn't do that. Oh I'm afraid he wouldn't like it. No he'd a lot rather I'd tell a hundred other people about his faults, wouldn't he? Make him feel a lot better. Or would he? Why, dear friends, put yourself in the place of the brother that has made a mistake. Wouldn't you rather somebody would come to you? Wouldn't you? You know the brother hears it as a rule sooner or later. What's that vine they talk about? The grapevine. You wonder why they call it that. If you ever prune in a vineyard, you'll know why. The grapevine is such a long vine. And oh, what a long vine this grapevine of gossip is, my friend. One telling another and telling another. Do you know it's possible for, even, for people to even feel a sort of a righteous, sanctimonious feeling? As they say, oh, did you hear what brother so-and-so did? Oh, isn't it awful? I just feel so bad. Feel so bad. Like people enjoying poor health you've heard about. Yes. My friend, that's murmuring. That's complaining. That's criticism. That's fault-finding. And Jesus tells us, how to relieve ourselves of any burden we have. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And it tells you what to do next if that doesn't work, and what to do next if that won't work. It's all there, the divine recipe. If we'll follow it, friends, it'll keep us from murmuring. But now keep this in mind. What is the reason for all this? It is to gain the brother. It's to help him. Murmuring doesn't help him, and it doesn't help us. Murmuring's hard on us. Murmuring's hard on the people who hear us murmur, and it's hard on the people we murmur about. And it's hard on God. It's hard on everybody, except the devil. It makes him happy. His orchestra just danced to that music. Oh, friend, let us thank God that there's a cure to all this gossip, fault-finding, complaining, and murmuring. It is in settling this fundamental thing. It is not our business to pass judgment on others. I was telling you in the sermon this morning about somebody not too long ago that said to me, 
what do you think about what they're doing at such and such an institution? And it was something that obviously they considered was out of the way. And the Lord gave me this answer, and I hope I don't forget it, for I need it, just like some of you need it. I said this to the party. I said, do you know, the Lord is impressing me that it takes all my time to find out what I ought to be doing about my problems and the institutions that I'm connected with. And so I don't have time to figure out what people in other institutions ought to be doing with their institution. I recommend it to you, friend. Leave the responsibility with other people of their actions. And if they stumble and fall, if you can help them, go help them. If you can't, leave them with God. God can handle them far better than you, and he can do it better and quicker if you and I won't murmur. If we'll go to the secret place of prayer and plead with God for the souls that we see in peril. I remember years ago, when I was a young minister, another young minister and I, we were greatly burdened about a certain matter, and we gave ourselves to prayer about it. You know, as we started into prayer that evening session, just the two of us alone, we were praying earnestly about a certain matter. It seemed to us that a certain individual was in the way. That it was because of the attitude of a certain individual that was hindering the work of God. And so we were praying earnestly about that. But you know, I'm thankful to the Lord. We prayed long enough that night until the thing got turned clear around and we saw that we were the ones that we're the problem. Let me tell you, friends, if you and I will lock ourselves in the divine surgery and let the divine surgeon operate on us, we will see many times that the reason we discern so many defects in others is that we ourselves are guilty, we ourselves are weak, we ourselves are out of the way. That's what Paul says in Romans, the second chapter, Thou that judgest another doest the same thing. Let's quit it, what do you say? Let's quit it. Remember, if there's something that needs correcting, we've studied here how to do it in Matthew 18. It doesn't mean that we should be derelict in our duty. It doesn't mean that we should wink at sin. It doesn't mean that we should whitewash transgression and iniquity. There's a proper way for the proper people to deal with things that need to be dealt with. But it is not like agitation. Oh, somebody says, I think everything ought to be out in the open. I think everything ought to be freely discussed. Now, just a minute, friend. Just a minute. Would you like to be the first one put on the altar on that program? Would you like to have everything that you've done just brought out and freely discussed in the open? As for me, I pray to be excused. I'm thankful that there's a plan to cover sin instead of expose them. What do you say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so, friends, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. As God has been so merciful to me to cover my many transgressions, 
the least that I can do to show my appreciation of his mercy is to cover his children with the robe of righteousness. Turn to 1 Peter, and let's read it right out of the book, the inspired book, 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, the eighth verse. He's talking to people that are living right down at the end when the coming of Jesus is near at hand, as the seventh verse shows. Now the eighth verse. And above all things have fervent charity. What does charity mean? Love among yourselves, for charity love shall cover the multitude of sins. That's it. What does love do? It covers. You know, I'm so thankful that I know a little bit about what this means. I have a dear little wife, and you could talk to her for an hour, a day, a week, or a month, and you'd never hear her murmur once about this man standing here. Not once. And it isn't because she has such a wonderful husband. It's because I have such a wonderful wife. But I'll tell you, all she has that makes it possible is love. That's all she's got that does it. And thank God she's got enough love to take all my faults and sins and failures and mistakes that she knows probably better than anybody on earth and just dump them in a great big grave and run a bulldozer over them and cover them up and not even put a headstone to mark the place. I'm thankful for that kind of love. And you know, if everybody loved me as much as she did, I'd never have a thing to worry about. Nobody would ever murmur about anything. Well, friends, we're going to a world where nobody murmurs about anything or anybody. What does it take? Love. That's all it takes, but it takes all of that. So tonight, we're asking God once again to take out that stony heart out of our bodies, our minds, that heart that has murmurs in it, and every murmur means some more surgery. Take it all out and put in us a heart of flesh, a heart of love, a heart that delights to cover the mistakes of others and leave with God the running of the universe. This is the key to sweet and happy trust, to accept the assignment of his providence moment by moment. Now I want to hear from you. It seems to me that with what we studied last night and then tonight, that every heart ought to be bubbling over with thanksgiving, that by the grace of God we can live a life without all these murmuring. Murmuring doesn't make anybody happy, does it? I suppose maybe some of us murmured because we thought we were supposed to. But now that we've learned that we don't have to, let's let that load roll off like that burden rolled off the, the uh, shoulder of Christian, that pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember when he saw the cross? The burden he'd carried so long rolled off his back and rolled and rolled and down into an empty tomb. As we behold the cross of Jesus, and our Savior dying the just for the unjust. 
let's let the burden go. What do you say? All right. One after another, speak to the glory of our God, and Jesus will be happy. Thanksgiving is just the opposite of murmuring. What is your word of praise tonight? May I ask you a question, brother? When would you like to get rid of that murmuring? Well, do you think God is willing to take it? Well, when are you going to turn loose of it? Good. Thank the Lord. You remember when the frogs were all over the land of Egypt and in the houses and the kneading trough? Pharaoh just cried out and he said, Entreat the Lord for me that these frogs will go. And Moses said, all right, now when would you like to have them go? You know what he said? Tomorrow, think of it. <laughs> Praise the Lord, brother. This is so important. If I go to murmur against him right in his presence, will I help him? Why no? If I go to complain about him, if I go and say, why in the world did you do that? No. I must go to help him. I long that we shall make an application of all we've studied tonight to a very practical point. The remnant church of God today has murmurs both within and from without. These murmurs hold meetings. They circulate literature. They give private interviews and drop words, all designed to lessen the faith of the remnant in the church organization that God has established. Listen while I read this statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. Criticism and condemnation of the brethren are counted as criticism and condemnation of Christ. Criticism and condemnation of the brethren are counted as criticism and condemnation of Christ. God will charge those who unwisely expose the mistakes of their brethren with sin of far greater magnitude than he will charge the one who makes the misstep. Every now and then somebody comes to me and says, Brother Frizee, what's wrong with so-and-so's teaching? Prove to me what's wrong with it. If you'll allow me to say it, I mean no disrespect, but I want to tell the truth. I can smell it. I don't have to taste it. I can smell it. I don't have to taste it. It reeks with the odor of criticism, complaining, fault-finding, murmuring. And I don't want to be infected with that disease. And if the theology were 100% correct, so much the worse, my friend. So much the worse. Criticism and condemnation of the brethren are counted as criticism and condemnation of Christ. Let me tell you, friends, it's still true what we studied last night. 
murmurs indicate what? Heart trouble. Not necessarily theological problems. Not necessarily doctrinal errors. There may be doctrinal errors. There may be theological problems. But that isn't what I'm talking about. If the theology were 100% perfect, if the doctrine were as pure as the doctrine of Christ, if it is saturated with this spirit of murmuring, then I repeat, murmurs indicate heart trouble. Truth is not just a matter of the mind. It is a matter of the heart and the soul. It's a matter of the spirit, my friend. It's a matter of the spirit. And so tonight, I plead with every one of you, be sure. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.